Grace and peace are yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God serving as our text, our first lesson from Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 32. In Christ Jesus, who is the answer to all of our prayers, dear fellow redeemed. The 17-year-old sat on the front steps of his parents' home. His eyes filled with tears as he listened to his father shouting inside, his fists slamming the kitchen table every now and again to punctuate his very angry words. Dad had been drinking again. The son just wanted it all to stop. The drinking, the anger, the shouting. So he did what he had been taught to do, like so many times before. He prayed. He asked God to help him, to help his father, his family, to, to just make it all better. But God didn't make it better. Instead, over time, it got much worse. What was that young man supposed to think? That God wasn't listening? That he didn't care or he couldn't help? Or was there something wrong with the teen and his prayer? Is that why God wasn't stepping in? Can you relate to that young man? Has it ever happened to you that you've prayed to God for something again and again and again and he just wouldn't give it to you? Why does that happen? Well, today we get some insights from Scripture. We get a lesson in prayer from Father Abraham himself who by his words and examples teaches us always pray boldly. Trusting God's listening and trusting God's answer. Abraham had just received some amazing news. God and two of his angels, in order to deliver that fantastic news in person, put on human flesh and blood and then announced that 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah we're about to have a son. The news gets even better because as God teaches Abraham, the promised savior from sin would be born a descendant of Abraham and Sarah's son. God's plan of salvation was in motion. The news couldn't have been better. But God had some other news to share with Abraham, some rather sobering news. He says to him, the outcry against the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. God is concerned about the outcry from the city. We have to understand what the outcry is all about. 
when Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, killed his brother Abel, God said to the murderer, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The verse really gives us an insight as to what it is that angers God so much about people's sin. It's the suffering that it causes the people that God has made for himself. That scream of suffering produced by people's sin reaches God's ears and it it hurts his heart. And that's what's happening there in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. People are suffering because of sin. Abraham knows that if God goes and finds things as, as bad as they appear to be, then God's going to put an end to the suffering by doing away with the sinners and their sin. He's, he's done it before. Now we might wonder, well, what could possibly be so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we know that those two cities are infamous for the way they perverted God's gift of sex in unspeakable ways. In fact, the two angels that had accompanied God were about to find that out firsthand as they themselves became the objects of men's twisted lust. And to make matters worse, these sins were not being practiced as some deep, dark secret in back rooms and basements of Sodom and Gomorrah. These things were happening out in broad daylight. We know it because centuries later, when God denounces the sins of his people Judah, he says of them, they parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. When people celebrate their sin, God won't stand for it. How does that make you feel? Well, I suppose it could leave us feeling a little smug, given the brazen attitude towards sin in this present time and place. Let's be honest, there are things happening around us that turn our stomachs. Maybe God is finally going to step in and do something about it. We'd welcome that, right? Or would we? At which sins would we have God draw the line if he's going to take action against sinners? The, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, before you answer, you better know everything that's going on in that place. Again, centuries later in the book of Ezekiel, God takes to task the people of Jerusalem and accuses them of committing the same sins as those of ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Oh. It seems God doesn't rank sin the way you and I so often do. As it turns out, our arrogance and pride, our tendency to overindulge our cravings while ignoring the needs of the people around us, all of this, all of our sins are just as detestable to God as any act that offends our own sensibilities. So if 
if God is going to act against sinners, why wouldn't he start with us? That question must have been on Abraham's mind. He knew the damning nature of sin, his own and that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if that had, was all that Abraham had known, I, I, I think he would have run for cover at about that point. But he doesn't run for cover. Instead, he, he stands his ground and he begins to pray. And he does that because he holds in his hands of faith the promise of a savior from all that sin. And that promise is the window to God's heart, a heart that beats with nothing but mercy and love. And Abraham finds that so inviting. He wants to talk to that God. And so do we, and we can. We can pray exactly like Abraham did. Abraham prayed for the righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham believed God's promise of a Savior and God credited to him as righteousness. In other words, not, not by anything Abraham was doing, but simply and only by faith in the promised Savior, God declared Abraham right in his eyes. Now Abraham is praying for people just like that. In other words, he's, he's praying for his fellow believers. He says to God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Abraham is being very bold in prayer, isn't he? And yet, as you read through that prayer, as you listen to it earlier, you notice that Abraham is also very humble. It's a rather odd combination, isn't it? Humility and boldness together. But Abraham is humble because he knows that in and of himself, he has no business praying to God. He understands his place and goes on to confess that I am nothing but dust and ashes. In other words... I'm the creature, a fallen creature at that, one made of dust. I, I'm not in position to give orders here or level demands. But Abraham could be bold, not because of who he was, but because of who God is. Abraham knows God to be the judge of all the earth who will do what is right. And as we just heard once again, this is the judge who taught Abraham that he was sending a Savior to be punished in the place of sinners. This judge will do what is right. When it comes to collecting on sin's penalty, he's not going to double dip. He's going to punish only the substitute of sinners, not those who believe in him. So yes, Abraham can be very bold and pray for his fellow believers knowing the love that God has for them. But Abraham's prayer doesn't stop there. He goes on and he also prays for the unbelievers of Sodom, which is such a powerful prayer lesson for us. Because I think, at least I, tend to see unbelievers most of the time as the enemies and as people to be feared and hated. 
Abraham sees them as they are, prisoners of war, slaves of Satan, that can be freed from that slavery only by the gospel message held in the hearts and on the lips of the believers who live among them. Abraham understands that this is what's going on here. And so he prays for those people. And his prayer is so pleasing to our God. Now that, that may sound a little strange to us because Abraham's prayer sounds a little strange. I, I would call it haggling. But to God, it must have been music in his ears, the God who wants all people to know Jesus and be saved. And so in, in his delight, God says to Abram, yes, yes, I will spare Sin City for the sake of 50 believers there. Even though I know so few believers are there, I also know they have the gospel. And it is so powerful that it can claim so many souls for Christ. Yes, I will spare the city. In fact, I'll... I'll spare the city for 45 believers. In fact, if it comes down to it, if there are only 10 believers there serving as my salt and light, I will spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an amazing conversation, isn't it? One that holds so many lessons for us. Let's just stop and, and take some stock of the lessons so far. First, first of all, Abraham is teaching us that we never have to be shy or sheepish in prayer. We can trust that God's always listening to us. He doesn't dismiss us because we're creatures or sinful dust. He's the God who has sent Jesus for us to take away our sin. And with that gift, he gives us a direct line to his throne of grace. What else do we learn? Well, God isn't pestered by us in prayer. He, he doesn't mind hearing from us again and again and again, even when we repeat ourselves. He's happy to hear those requests. And he wants us to be bold in prayer. He wants us to ask great things of him because he can do great things. And he wants us to ask for ourselves, but not ourselves alone, for others, including the unbelievers of the world. This pleases our God. Abraham's prayer pleased God. When he finished praying, we're told in the verse that follows our text, he went home. He went home in peace. There was nothing else to do. He was trusting God's answer. The next morning, Abraham got up to the sight of smoke and the smell of sulfur. God had destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Had he gone back on his word? Not at all. In fact, as Abraham was soon to learn, God had done more than all he asked or imagined. See, there weren't ten righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was only Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his two daughters. So what did God do? He rescued the three of them. The righteous did not perish with the wicked. As for all those unbelievers, I suppose there we might swallow a little hard and and say, why so many deaths? And for the answer to that question, we have to go back to what we know about our God. First and foremost, we know him to be the God of mercy and love who gave his own son to rescue sinners. In that love, God operates constantly 
for the good, the eternal good of his church. He has done this down through the centuries of time. When the wickedness of this world was so great that it, it threatened to wipe out God's plan of salvation, God stepped in and he preserved God's promise. He kept the promise of Jesus alive and well in the safekeeping of Noah and his family, the only people to survive that worldwide flood. And God says he's doing the same thing right now. As, as this world winds down, as we come to the end, God wants us to know that as things get so bad and they threaten the existence of his church on earth, he's going to step in once again. He says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. See, this is the way God's always operating. He's always got his eye on our heavenly good. That's how he answers every prayer. That's how he answered Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how the Son of God prayed? Father, if you are willing, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Here's the prayer of the righteous man. And how does God answer it? According to his will. His will is to save us. So he doesn't take the cup away. Instead, he sends the angel to strengthen Jesus so that he could complete his saving mission. Hours later, Jesus is praying again, this time from the cross. Father, forgive them. How does he answer the prayer, God? According to his will. Not for the sake of 50 or 30 or 10, but for the sake of one, the one who died and came to life again. God has declared sinners everywhere forgiven and promises that all who believe this have eternal life. It's always about the eternal life. God is always answering our prayers, always with the big picture of our salvation in mind. It makes you want to pray all the time, doesn't it? Knowing that when he answers your prayers, it's always for your heavenly good. It also gives us some insight as to why God isn't always giving us everything we want when we want it. <laughs> because instead he's doing more than all we ask and imagine. I wish I could go back and tell that to my 17-year-old self. I would tell that tearful young man that the prayers that he was offering on behalf of my father and my troubled family were not a waste of breath. God heard every word and knew just how and when to work his will. I was so impatient. I wanted immediate relief. I wasn't thinking how God might be timing matters to arrange my father's safe homecoming to heaven 30 years later. I wasn't thinking about how God might be using the troubles of that time to steer the course of our lives or how he might use the lessons we learned to bring hope and encouragement in the future to people we would meet and know and love. Now I wish I could tell you on the basis of that experience that I have become a prayer master who always prays with great patience and deep spiritual insight. But it's just not the case. As it turns out in my prayer life, like all other aspects of my spiritual life, I remain a work 
in progress, as do you. But don't let that discourage you. Because the one who hears and answers our prayers is not put off by our failures. Instead, he forgives them. And more than that, he covers them, covers us with the perfection of his son, Jesus, in whose name we can always be bold to pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for spending some time with us and worshiping with us online today. We are so glad you fed your faith through the work of Mount Olive, and we'd love to know that you fed your faith. So head on over to mountoliveappleton.com and click the online friendship register, or just click the link in the description here. It takes about one minute to fill out. Thanks so much for spending time with us. God's blessings on your day.